Welcome to The Pharmacy Benefit, a podcast that highlights the latest news on drug costs, pharmacy care, and patient access with a focus on the role of the PBM industry. I'm your host, J.C. Scott. Now that we're not just weeks, but months into the COVID pandemic, we're starting to get a better idea of the impact it's having on the healthcare marketplace. Not surprisingly, healthcare consumption appears to be improving in some areas, while the overall economic recovery continues to lag. I want to get into what we're seeing right now in the pharmaceutical market, why we're seeing it, and what it could potentially mean going forward, both for businesses in space and, importantly, the patients that rely on them. Joining me to talk about these dynamics is Doug Long, the Vice President of Industry Relations with IQVIA, a well-respected organization that specializes in health information technology and clinical research. Doug has extensive experience in healthcare and pharmaceutical research and can help us understand some of these trends and put them into context. Doug, thank you for joining us. Same here, JC. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, why don't we start off with just a little bit of background on uh, IQVIA as an organization so that our listeners who might not be familiar have have a handle on what you all do. What is IQVIA? IQVIA is a actually a human data science company, and it was the byproduct of a merger between IMS Health, which was a pharmaceutical information company, and Quintiles, which is a clinical trials company. And we changed the name to Quintiles IMS, and then finally changed to IQVIA. Uh, so we've uh, we've been together for about uh, about three years now, operating in over 100 countries around the world. So tell us what you do as a company. We capture the sales of pharmaceutical products all around the world. We do which uh, physicians are high prescribers. We do a lot of real-world evidence. We're doing a lot, uh, do, doing a lot with medical claims data on clinical trials. A lot on uh, vir- virtually everything we got our fingers in right now. So you're doing some of your own data mining and data collection both from available sources and sounds like some legwork that, that you all do on your own. And, and I assume that gives you a pretty good overall view of the, of the healthcare marketplace. I think we have, uh, you know, I think we have one of the best views, uh, considering that we sit on the amount of data that we sit on. So looking at the work that you've been doing over the last couple of months uh, since the onset of the pandemic, wh- what have you been focused on, not just in the pharmaceutical space, but, but broadly speaking, what have you been focused on in particular? Well, what we're focused on this germane to our conversation today is the impact of COVID on the pharmaceutical marketplace. But looking at the pharmaceutical marketplace, you got to look at what's happening on surgeries and outpatient visits and inpatient visits and so forth. We do a lot of statistical modeling on, um, uh, you know, when you're when these different states and different countries are going to peak. But mainly, we're studying what the impact of COVID nineteen has been on the pharmaceutical marketplace. Excellent. Well, let's let's use that to start to paint a little bit of a picture of what you all have been seeing since the the COVID pandemic first took hold in March. So so maybe take us back in time a, a couple of months to to March 2020. What were some of the first changes and trends in prescription drug fills at, at retail pharmacies? What what were some of the first things you noticed? Well, let, let's let's take it back to the kind of the beginning of the year. And the beginning of the year got off to sure. a, prom- a promising start. Uh, on prescriptions. And then we came to March and when COVID, uh, COVID hit, uh, we call that the stockpiling month because everybody got to the stores, the retail pharmacies or the male pharmacies to get as much prescription product as they possibly can get. Generally, they were refill prescriptions. And a lot of those uh, prescriptions were 90-day prescriptions in March. 
So that really jumped up the utilization of 90-day scripts uh, substantially from what it was before. And so uh, people had a lot of stock on hand. So think about, you know, there was kind of panic. Uh, so you want to make sure you had a, a much, uh, as much supply as you possibly can have. You know, think about uh, toilet paper. Think about trying to get paper towels. Think about trying to get a lot of things. So that was the stock up uh, uh, period. And probably the me people's medical possession ratio was probably higher than ever was because they were sitting on all these, all these uh, prescriptions in their in their cabinets, and there were 90-day prescriptions. So we saw March. I call that the stockpiling month. April and May were kind of the months that uh, people were working off their what they had in their inventory. So uh, you saw demand really drop 20% um, or so. In, in April and May. And recently we've seen it start to come back and we've seen the year ago data on a weekly, weekly non-adjusted prescriptions, meaning pieces of paper, only down a 1% less than it was last year. So it's coming back. And when you adjust it and for 90 day scripts make, in essence, make 90 day scripts, 330 day scripts is the last two weeks have shown an increase in demand from last year. So does that tell you, Doug, as you look at the last couple of weeks of June, does that tell you that, that things are getting back to normal trends from what we saw in 2019? Or is it simply that the people who underwent the stockpiling that you referenced back in March have now hit the end of their 90-day fills and we're seeing another round of stockpiling take place? Well, it's, it's, a complicated, it's a complicated answer because you almost have to look at the market on what's a new prescription or what's a refill prescription. You have to look at whether it was an acute prescription or whether it was a chronic prescription. Then you look at whether it was a 90 day or a 30 day. So there's a lot of, metri lot of metrics there. So hypothetically, what you're seeing is the refill market coming back. And people are, are now back in June trying to get more refills. You're also seeing at the same time is that new prescriptions starting to come up from where they were and acute prescriptions were starting to come up when when because when the market shut down or when you can't go see a doctor physically or go to a hospital is that you're not going to get new prescriptions so what uh, we've seen refills come back new prescriptions have come back and what's really lagging still is the acute prescriptions the acute prescriptions will come back when there's more hospital visits, surgeries, new patient starts, and things of that sort. And just uh, for the uninitiated, what do you mean by acute prescriptions? Acute prescriptions, let's just say you had the flu and you get an antibiotic. Uh, let's say that you had uh, you had a wound and you needed, needed an antibiotic. You know, so it's for the acute medications versus the chronic medications such as diabetes or hypertension or cholesterol or antidepressants, antipsychotics, things that, you know, prescriptions that are on for a short time, which are acute, and versus a long time, uh, even maybe for the rest of your life on chronic. Got it. That's, that, that's helpful. But, but the overall takeaway here is that in June, we are starting to see some uptick in new prescriptions, which, which we might attribute towards return to perhaps something closer to normal behaviors. But you're also seeing the refills come back, which may simply be the expiration of people's 90-day supply that they got back in March. I would assume in that category that you're seeing people go for another 90 days. 
Well, you would. That's what my expectation would be. But what throws a little wrench into the whole thing is that uh, the unemployment rate. You know, so this is a whole mm-hmm. different world than where we were in March. You know, because there's more, a lot more unemployment. And though the question is, is that do these people that uh, lost their jobs are they uninsured now, or are they on Medicaid now? And you know, Medicaid generally has a very low percentage of of 90 day scripts to begin with. So if you're in Medicaid you're probably not going to see those people come back to 90-day scripts. Uninsured, probably not coming back to 90-day scripts. They probably get the cheapest prescription they could possibly get. So that's the caveat on that. That's an important caveat. And it it is complicated to track in part because we've seen some some policy change driven at the state and federal level that's sort of encouraging 90-day fills in areas where in past years we might not have seen them. So a lot of different behavioral incentives now that might be changing how people are acting. Yeah, I could, you know, JC, I never could understand why the 90-day Medicaid prescription was as low as it was, you know, particularly as cheap as some of these products are. But, you know, their their rationale, as I talk to Medicaid directors, is that, you know, just because somebody's on Medicaid now doesn't mean they'll be on Medicaid next month. So, you know, the question, do, you, do they want to make an investment for, for 90 days or not? So my guess, Doug, is that as a research organization, you prefer to rely on the data and not do a lot of speculative forecasting. But based on what you've seen from the latest June numbers, what what are your expectations for where the trends go in terms of new prescriptions and refills? I think the refills will, will continue on. The question is whether it be 30s or, or 90s. The new prescriptions will, will come back as uh, the healthcare system comes back online because people still get injured, still get hurt, still need the acute medicines. So uh, we probably had a little setback on that with some of the states closing down a little bit now. But, uh, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're coming back as well. Now, where do we end up the year? It's hard. It's hard to tell. And it depends on where you where you look at regular prescriptions or adjusted prescriptions. If you look at regular prescriptions, there'll probably be fewer prescriptions in, in 2020 than there was in t- 2019. On an adjusted prescription basis, is that that should be flat to positive because more 90-day scripts in the system. Last question here in, in terms of the trends on, on fills. Are there any specialties or any particular therapeutic classes of drugs that had particularly high trends in fills or, or large decreases in fills that are worth mentioning? It's an interesting question. Let's talk about first the classes that lost the most. And number one was broad spectrum antibiotics, hmm. 20 down 27%. Corticosteroids down 18%. Narcotic analgesics, which follows the trend, 8 and 13%. Antiarthritics, 10%. Oral contraceptives, 7%. And antiulcerants, 6%. Now, no surprise is the things that went up was bronchodilators. So if you could get an inhaler in March, you're going to jump on that as much as you possibly could because of uh, breathing issues and so forth. Uh, diuretics were up 6%, uh, antipsychotics up 5%, anti-anxiety up 3 and antidepressants up 2 So I would assume then that for those areas where you mentioned the significant d- decreases in fills, uh, for some of those that are chronic medications, we're going to eventually see some negative impact on both adherence and health outcomes as a result of that. Yeah, there's a study out a week or so that I saw that, you know, adherence is down, which is not not a surprise. Mm. Although what they looked at adherence on a unadjusted basis, meaning a, a, a prescription is a prescription basis. 
And we're trying to recreate that and look at it on a adjusted basis because if if people, you know, people have more day supply, hypothetically, there'll be more adherent because all you're measuring on adherence in reality is do they have it or not, not whether they took it. Yeah. And that gets to a sort of a separate set of questions, which are, you know, what are the channels through which people are able to access their prescriptions right now? As people who've listened to our podcast before know, I'm a mail order customer, customer myself. Um, I have a you know, a chronic medication I take for for cholesterol. I've always gotten a 90 day supply in the mail, and I kind of went into the pandemic with the assumption that others were going to discover the convenience of mail order and home delivery and move in that direction. But what is the data telling us in terms of uptake on mail order? Well, mail mail did uh, get an uptake, you know, because I, I think partly it was you're going to get it anywhere you could get it. And if you're concerned about getting going out in public and going to a re- retail store to pick it up, then mail is going to be very attractive to you. Now, however, a lot of retail pharmacies now deliver those prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So that, that negates one of the potential advantages of, of, of mail. So I think there's been some growth in mail. I got to look at it for a longer period of time to see how sticky it is. But I assume it'll be uh, some of the people that got these prescriptions from mail, they're going to get them again through mail rather than going back to retail. And are you able to discern within those trends in, in mail order prescription fills, which ones are new patients filling prescriptions through mail order or or existing patients who are just moving more of their prescriptions over to mail? JC, we didn't, I haven't looked at that, but I think that's an interesting thing that I could look at is that we, we can look at, we've been looking at new and refills, total mail and retail combined. I haven't seen it separately. So let me look into that and I can get back to you on that. Doug, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to get your insight on on shortages uh, in particular. And you mentioned a moment ago that some of the therapeutic classes of drugs where you saw increase in fills included things like inhalers, right, which both were important for people coming off of ventilators and continue to be important for patients who suffer from asthma or other chronic breathing conditions. I'm curious, does IQVIA track shortages what data set do you rely on if you do, and um, and what have you seen? I wouldn't say that we're the primary uh, keeper of drug shortages, but we do study a lot. I mean, the, in the United States, the University of Utah that has the best best databases, so we're we're aware of it. We're doing a lot of work on uh, uh, on drug shortages in Europe as well. Hmm. And when you talk about drug shortages, I think the most amazing thing through this whole process has been, is how well the supply chain held up, you know, from 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 front end to, 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 to back end. And I mean, in the supply chain, I mean the, I mean the manufacturers, the PBMs, the, the pharmacies, the wholesalers, the logistic companies. I mean, there was not many shortages that you saw in reality. And, and some of the, pers- more of the shortages had to do with hospitals, you know, particularly uh, there's ventilators, but that's not the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical businesses. So, but a lot of the sedatives were hard to find for these hospitals that may be needed for the ventilator patients. So, I mean, I, I, I give uh, five stars to the supply chain and, it, and it, it came through flying colors and it's a more respected uh, part of every country right now. They know what the supply chain is because even with China being down for five weeks, and nothing being made in China, key starting materials and API, 
is we di really didn't have shortages on generics to the extent that we we thought we might. So it it held up it held up nicely. Now we have one, you know, on on Zoloft right now, which mm. seems to be a combination of increased demand, API. You know, there's never usually one one individual factor. Is usually a combination of factors. Yeah, we've been watching the Zoloft shortage as well, and I think you know, unfortunately, as an antidepressant, it's related to what you were commenting on earlier—the increased mental stress that that so many people are feeling during the pandemic. So that may be an issue of increased demand. The other area we've been watching is around drugs that are identified as potentially helping to treat COVID. Mm -hmm. Right. So things like hydroxychloroquine uh, was looked at early on as a potential treatment. Now we seem to have an excess supply. Right now, there's a lot of focus on dexamethasone, right. uh, relatively inexpensive generic steroid. But I'm curious what you're seeing as as we get the reports of the next drug that might be a, a critical piece to the puzzle of t helping to treat the virus. It, it seems to me that that that's where we still have some risk of spot shortages. Right. So that's you know, I guess you know, word of mouth. You know, so the first one was hydrocorticoin. And we saw that just accelerate off the chart. So anything that people thought was going to be useful for that, uh, people tried it. Doctors tried it. People stocked up on it and so forth. And now the, um, you know, kind of the the big three right now, minus vaccines, is um, is ridenafir, red, red, you know, from, from Gilead. You've just heard some, you know, that helps people hypothetically in hospitals with their ventilators, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. you know, the corticosteroids. Now one's an expensive brand, one's a, um, one's a, a cheap generic. And you also hear about uh, blood, blood plasma transplants possibly from infected patients to non-infected patients. And, and I think that Redenafir, if I pronounce it great, is that it was donated uh, in June. There was one supplier you could get it from, which was Amerisource Bergen, and the government uh, determined where where it would go. And so I think when you have these these potential treatments, is that you want to make sure that you can get them, and then you want to make sure they get to the right to right places and the right people. What you don't want to have is people hoarding and stocking up, because it doesn't do it doesn't do a patient any good if they can't get it when somebody's sit, sitting on it in another state, in another hospital. But I guess the the, the, the takeaway here, Doug, from, from what you've observed is, is, yes, we may have some limited examples of drug-specific shortages when it's the word-of-mouth effect uh, related to potential COVID treatments. But otherwise, the supply chain held up really well. There were not widespread shortages of most medications. I'm curious on, on your view, though, as to the effectiveness of the system we have here in the United States for monitoring for those shortages. Like, because I, I have learned um, through the course of this and, and working with our supply chain partners that, that at times the data that FDA collects can can lag by a couple of weeks and that they really look at things from a national level and not so much uh, regional or provider-specific level. And I'm, I'm curious, do you have any takeaways on how we could improve shortage tracking here in this country? Well, you know, I think, I mean, one of the things I think I'm going to anticipate is that uh, on critical drugs, you know, the pandemic drugs, you're going to have to have a stockpile of those. Maybe that the stockpiles in the wholesalers. And I think there'll be also, knowing what we know now, there'll be more in, increased safety stock 
to have on hand, you know, because the ones that are really critical, we're going to need to make sure we know where they are and then how you get them to the people that need to get them. That sounds like, uh, you know, you know, that's got to be a public private partnership to make it succeed. Yeah, the, uh, the the health system pharmacists in particular, I know, as you look at public-private collaboration on on some of this tracking, um, have been found to have a really effective system for um, monitoring some of this this data. No, I can, well, if you're looking at it every day and you know what you need in your hospital system, yeah, you, you got to keep, you got to keep your laser focus on that. Doug, let, let's talk a little bit. I want to I go back to, to something that you mentioned at the top as uh, you were describing the work that IQVIA does. And, it, and it's not just tracking the pharmaceutical marketplace specifically, but you also have to look at the larger trends in healthcare delivery that might impact prescription trends. And, and would like you to reflect on what you've been seeing in terms of elective procedures, well patient visits, other optional healthcare. For example, my, my wife had uh, postponed an inpatient surgery that she had to have done, and she just got that completed last week. And the, the hospital here in Arlington is pretty much still locked down. I, I wasn't allowed to go into the building with her, for example, but uh, they seem to be seeing here in Arlington more volume of activity on those kind of elective procedures. Are you are you seeing similar trends nationwide? Yeah, the, yeah, uh, we definitely are. And of course, this depends on what the what degree the states have reopened or what what degree they're lo- still locked out. Hmm. So if you start out with a baseline pre-COVID, in the week of April 10th, elective procer- procedures are down 88% in the United States, 88%. Now they're down 32% in the, in, in the latest week. So you know, it depends, you know, where you are, whether states are opening, not opening. And the U.S. backlog, so we do, we do look at a backlog by, you know, by certain type of surgeries, you know, somewhere between 2.3 months and 4.8 months. So that that's the, the demand will come back. It just depends on how long it'll take the hospitals to work through the backlog. So at some point, we we will see people coming back to, to to get the procedures done that they had deferred. That backlog will will start to clear, and yes. you'd anticipate we'll see a real a real uptick in that trend, which then of course will impact the prescribing trends from coming out of those procedures. Yes, I think that's going to be a back half trend. And in the meantime, you know, a lot of the news reporting would tell us that providers have have shifted to telehealth with varying degrees of success. What are you seeing in in terms of trends around telehealth and and how permanent and lasting do you think those may be? Telehealth is here to stay. You know, it it probably did 10 years worth of business in two months because when the doctor's offices were shut down and you couldn't see a doctor physically, and that's where telehealth came came into play. So let's just say that it was about 1% of the claims before COVID started. And uh, now it is about 12% of the claims. And it got this, it peaked at about 20% of the claims uh, why those offices were shut, were shut down. Now you see outpatient and inpatient visits going back online. So my next visit at Mayo, where I belong, is actually going to be a telehealth one. So that'll be a new one. And so it's definitely here to stay. And I think it's going to be a very important part of healthcare delivery. But there are limitations, right, in terms of what can be achieved through telehealth, in particular when it comes to 
diagnostics yep. that then lead to prescriptions, right? Right. So um, my my father-in-law is a, is a physician and he has practiced quote unquote telehealth on my family for the about 20 years that I've been married and don't turn him in, but he's not shy to prescribe after a phone diagnosis of strep throat or something here at our house. But generally speaking, it's it's pretty hard for a physician to diagnose and prescribe when they can't physically interact with the patient. Is that right? Well, let, let's think about it this way, JC. So you're a new diabetic patient or new potentially new diabetic patient. What's your blood sugar level? So do you have to go get a, you know, test your blood sugar to tell the doctor what it, what it is, or he's going to have to refer you somewhere to get that blood sugar uh, taken. And there's a number of classes like that, that you might need labs uh, to decide what the next best step is. So there are some limitations to telehealth, particularly on, um, on the lab testing and, and some of the diagnostics. Yeah. And so for our, for our listeners who are acutely focused on, on what it means for prescribing trends, the, the takeaway could be that telehealth may be here to stay, but that could have a negative impact on prescribing trends, or, or it could be here to stay, but it's not going to fully replace the need for in-person interactions. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, so some of the things that, you know, the downside of telehealth is a lack of diagnostics, such as vitals and labs, are, are impacting diagnosis of new conditions, which we talked about. We know that telehealth visit is unlikely to generate as many new prescriptions as a uh, as a regular office visit does, and people generally will spend less time with the doctor on a telehealth visit than they do in person. Doug, you've been you've been really generous with your time, uh, and I want to be mindful of it. Let me let me ask you a, just a, a general really, closing. JC, question. I have nothing else to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Well, I've enjoyed the conversation, and, and as we reflect back on it. Maybe boil it down for us. Uh, looking ahead, what do you, what are the two or three key trends that we should all be watching? That you're going to be watching? They're going to tell us that we're we're starting to get back to normal. Well, I think the first thing you need to look at is that you know we have all the, all these positive tests on COVID in the United States, and uh, what people seem to lose sight of is that the average age of a COVID pa- a COVID diagnosed patient now is thirty. And uh, two months ago was 65. And whether you're going to live or die depends on what your age is, whether you're in a nursing home, and what, what kind of comorbidities you might you might have. So we got to watch what the trend is on that. And I, I'm not seeing that the new uh, uptake in COVID patients have really increased the death rate. Generally, most people will recover from it. So you got to look at that. Then you got to look at uh, what new treatments come down the way in terms of medicines uh, and what's the vaccine market. And everybody and his brother is in the vaccine market. Uh, you know, there's Operation Warp Speed and so forth. So those are kind of the environmental things that, that you, you would look at. Closer to home is that you're going to follow uh, how does elective surgeries translate into new prescriptions? How does telehealth translate into new prescriptions? Do the 90-day scripts stay 90-day scripts or not? So I guess the key measuring points would be, you know, look at what happens with acute prescriptions and look what happens with new prescriptions. And that that will, will show you what the trend is going forward. That That's helpful, Doug. And, and for anybody who is looking for a resource, I have to say the data that you put out for my QVO on a, on a weekly basis has just been so informative through the through the course of this pandemic, as it always has been. Uh, so we really appreciate the work that you're doing and, and keeping us all informed. 
Well, thank you so much and much appreciated. Happy to help. Well, thanks again for your time today. You, I think you, you gave our listeners a really good understanding of what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. And I also want to thank everybody for listening today and hope that you found the conversation informative. If you haven't done so yet, you can subscribe to The Pharmacy Benefit on Google, Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast sites. I'm JC Scott. Thank you for joining me. Mm-hmm.